Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, also Dr. Bjorn Lomborg on the issue of climate. From Washington, Fred Flights, who was a top advisor to President Donald Trump on the issue of the whistleblowers. Sean Simpson from Ipsos on polling, election polling for Global News. And we'll hear from Germain Belzile from the Montreal Economic Institute. Seems Quebecers prefer oil from Western Canada to anywhere else in the world. And Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, on the release by the RCMP of a report on the BC teen killers. That and more. I had the opportunity yesterday to pre-tape an interview with Premier Kenny. We talked about a lot of things, including the relationship between British Columbia and Alberta. We talked about the environment. We talked about pipelines. And yes, we spoke about Mr. Trudeau. Have a listen. Premier, uh, let me start with Bill 12. This week, a federal court granted British Columbia a temporary injunction against Alberta's turn-off-the-taps legislation. But in May of this year... The British Columbia Court of Appeal unanimously refused to support the Horgan government, petitioning for the right for B.C. to decide whether an increase in flow of diluted bitumen in pipelines crossing the province was victorious to decide. So where does Alberta stand now on the the turn-off-the-taps legislation? Well, we're reviewing the the, uh, decision. It was only an interim decision, not a final one. Uh, But we will take whatever steps we can to protect the value of our natural resources against an illegal, unconstitutional effort by other provincial governments to block Canada's major export product, which is uh, Alberta's oil, which brings hundreds of billions of dollars into the Canadian economy that helps to build schools, hospitals, roads, and deliver public services from coast to coast, including in British Columbia. To be honest with you, I think the uh, the turn off the taps legislation, well, it was brought in uh, before a different court decided to uh, unanimously to uh, shut down British Columbia's threats to block the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That was a uh, unanimous decision of the British Columbia Appeal Court a few months back. So we actually think that uh, their threats have been rendered um, uh, toothless and that we will be able we'll get that pipeline built. Uh, and Premier Horgan has assured me that they will respect the rule of law and issue the permits as they are quite required to do by law. Let's move across the country to Quebec. Uh, as you know, the Premier there, Legault, has flatly refused. Energy East or any new pipelines which might carry Alberta oil across any part of Quebec. I find it interesting, though, the Montreal Economic Institute conducted a poll which shows 66% of Quebecers prefer oil for the province to originate in Western Canada. The United States is next at 7%. And 79% of Premier Legault's CAC Party supporters want oil for Quebec to be from Western Canada. Plus, Quebecers also say pipelines are the most safe way to transport oil, 45% of them. Next, truckers at... uh, 14% and 13% for trains and 19 or 9% rather by by ship. That's an interesting uh, development development out of the province of Quebec. Yeah, we've always known that a majority of Quebecers uh, prefer Canadian energy to dictator oil. It's ridiculous that uh, Quebec continues to be partly dependent on OPEC oil and and massively on foreign oil imports. Most of the most of that comes now from the United States, but why why would they want to be enriching the American economy rather than helping uh, to buy Canadian energy, which helps to pay the bills for Quebec through equalization. 
So I've always said, uh, you know, we, we respect our, our friends in Quebec, but if they want to benefit from our energy wealth, they've got to help us develop it and send it. If there's no social acceptability for Alberta energy, then how come there's social acceptability for $13 billion in equalization payments that the Quebec government pay, get, receives, funded largely by Western Canadian energy. So I think most Quebecers get this. The problem is there's a noisy minority, um, primarily in Montreal, which has an oversized voice through some of the Quebec media that frankly distorts the debate. And if we gave Quebecers a choice between uh, buying Canadian energy and foreign energy and pipelines and rail, remembering lac Megantic, I have no doubt what they will choose. Premier, is Alberta on the short end of the stick because of the number of MPs Quebec sends to Ottawa vis-a-vis your province and Jagmeet Singh siding with Quebec, arguing the province should have the right to decide about pipelines? We know Trudeau does, and Elizabeth May doesn't want pipelines at all. A liberal majority government on the 21st of October would kill any pipeline crossing uh, Quebec carrying oil product from Alberta. We know that. And a liberal minority government would uh, garner support from the NDP and the Greens to stop any pipelines crossing the province of Quebec again. Have you been placed behind the proverbial eight ball? Well, we cert- we're certainly getting the short end of the stick in the country, and, and what we're fighting for is fairness in the Federation. Uh, you asked if this is because Quebec has more seats. Well, there's... It- in part, yes. In, in part, the West has always been treated uh, throughout our, our economic and political history as the milk cow of confederation, but we've never had the numbers to really uh, defend uh, our fair treatment, you see. So this, is, this has always been a structural problem in the, in the Canadian Federation, going way back over 100 years ago. Um, but this is really getting serious, because you've got a federal party leader, Jagmeet Singh, who is saying he's going to grant to provinces the ability to block major national projects like pipelines, even though the Constitution is crystal clear. It has been since 1867 that uh, interprovincial uh, projects like pipelines and railways and so on are the exclusive jurisdiction of the federal government. M- what Mr. Singh wants to do, and really Mr. Trudeau by a little bit um, more subtly, what they want to do is to balkanize the country, allow uh, to undermine national unity, and to stifle our prosperity by allowing regions to block the flow of national products, which again, pay the bills. Albertans have contributed over $615 billion net to the rest of the Federation in the past five decades. We contribute net about $20 billion a year right now, even though we're in a reset, in a period of prolonged economic stagnation. And Quebec receives net at least $13 billion a year. All we're asking for is the ability to develop and sell the resources that pay the bills from which Canadians from coast to coast benefit. You know, my message, and I said this on the night I was elected as Alberta's premier in French on live national television, is let's be partners in prosperity. We Albertans are generous. We don't mind helping our fellow Canadians. But darn it all, help us to get a fair price for the resources that pay those bills. What do you make of what's going on as far as the climate change argument is concerned? You and I are recording this interview on Friday afternoon, yesterday afternoon, and uh, today across the country there are climate marches, and uh, we know that the federal leaders, with the exception of uh, Mr. Scheer, are participating. What, what do you make about the, what's happening as far as the climate issue is concerned? 
Well, you know, we're not going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by with, with hysterical rhetoric and endless protests. Uh, we're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions through real practical measures by developing technologies that reduce carbon output and improve the environment. And that's what we're committed to doing in Alberta. We'll be launching a uh, technology innovation and environmental research fund supported by a levy on major industrial emitters, as opposed to the Trudeau idea of a carbon tax that punishes ordinary folks for just living their lives, heating their homes and filling up their gas tanks. So we're going to focus on a levy on major industrial emissions uh, that will support research and development through scientific advancement that shrinks carbon intensity. We've already been doing that. We should celebrate what we're doing in Canada. We've reduced by 30% the carbon uh, output of an, in the production of a barrel of Alberta heavy crude. We're on track to reduce it by another 20%. Um, you know, we're doing some amazing things. And by the way, you could shut down the Canadian economy tomorrow, and I guess some of these people sound like they'd like to, it would make a negligible difference in global greenhouse gas emissions. Nationally, we're responsible for only 1.6%, the Alberta energy industry for a fraction of that. Um, and, and so instead of punishing ourselves, how about we develop technologies that we can share with China, India, the developing world that are going through massive increases in carbon and greenhouse gas emissions? That's what we're focused on doing. I'll give you one example, Roy. If we could get a West Coast liquefied natural gas facility and pipeline to support it and we could ship much needed canadian gas to china and india it would allow them to convert many of their coal-fired plants that produce energy electricity to natural gas they could massively reduce their uh greenhouse gas outputs like the americans have done by shifting from coal to natural gas okay so those are the practical things you don't get to by holding protests Premier, I have to ask you this. The entire country has been watching the development in the campaign involving the Prime Minister of Canada, or at least the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, with the blackface and the brownface uh, racist appearances and the refusal by Mr. Trudeau to answer any questions about whether there are more than those three occasions and whether 2001 was the final occasion in which he appeared in either black or brownface. What do you say to all of this? Well, I frankly find the whole situation bizarre. I'm 51 years of age. I've, I've, I've not lived a sheltered life, and yet I've never seen anybody engage in this racial mockery of blackface. Like, I just cannot imagine what possessed this guy to have develop a, a bit of a uh, penchant uh, for this uh, racist clown act. It's beyond belief. And what I've, I, I, to add insult to injury, he seems to be blaming society for his own contact, conduct, calling this a teaching moment, a learning moment for all of us, and we all must do better. No, Prime Minister, this isn't about all of us. It's not about Canadian society. Don't try to externalize your uh, personal conduct. It's about you. And moreover, it's about a guy who sits on a pedestal throwing rocks at all at a political opponents for offending the, the sensibilities of political correctness, throwing people, saying that people are condemned out of politics, you know, um, without due process, and yet he gets a second, third, and fourth chance? Um, I, I just find the, the hypocrisy astonishing. Premier Kenny, good talking to you. Thank you very much for the time. 
Thanks, Roy. On the uh, climate issue, uh, Dr. Bjorn Lomborg is the founding director of the Copenhagen Consensus Center think tank, which includes seven Nobel laureates. He does believe in uh, and does support the position of human-induced climate change, but Dr. Lomborg has long challenged what he describes as false alarms on climate by the United Nations, and he argues, I don't want to put words in his mouth, he's on the line, massive amounts of money demanded to slow increasing global temperatures will accomplish almost nothing while the same money could lift the world out of poverty. I might be getting myself into rising waters here. Uh, no pun intended. You can, uh, you can find uh, the Copenhagen uh, Consensus Center online, of course, and uh, it's uh, copenhagenconsensus.com, and one of Dr. Lomborg's books is Cool It. Well, Dr. Lomborg, good to have you with us. Thanks uh, for coming back on the program, and a lot of activity yesterday with the climate rallies in uh, in Canada, and uh, you know as well as I do the, the emotion expressed by Greta Thunberg at the United Nations, and she's certainly resonating with people across around the world. What do you say to all of this? Hey, Roy, it's good to be here. Yes. So, uh, so very clearly, a lot of people are very concerned about global warming, and I think Greta is really just uh, in in many ways expressing the fear that we are being told from all sides that global warming this is this almost world-ending uh, issue. Uh, there was a YouGov uh, study that came out uh, last week that actually showed that 48% of all people in the world believe that global warming could lead to the extinction of the human race. And, and look, global warming, as you also point out, it's a real problem. But this sort of hype, this sort of alarmism is simply off the hooks, and it's simply not consistent with what the UN Climate Panel is telling us. Global warming is a problem, but what they say is by the 2070s, so in 50 years' time, the impact of global warming will be equivalent to every person on the planet losing somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of his or her income. That is a problem. That's not the end of the world. And, of course, remember, by then, we will probably be somewhere between 300 and 500 percent richer. So, yes, it is a problem. It is by no means the end of the world. And scaring our kids silly, like we've done with Greta and many, many others, that we've actually made almost half of the world's population believe that there's a real risk that we're going to see extinction of the human race is simply irresponsible. The American Psychological Association, as I understand it, even have a term now for global warming fears or panic. I've, I've heard about that, yes. And, and, of course, when you scare people witless, you are going to get a lot of people having real fears. Uh, and, and that, of course, is terrible if it's not warranted. Now, again, it is a problem we need to fix. It's one among many, many problems on this planet. And actually, one of the lower ones, when you ask, uh, the UN asked 10 million people across the world, what do you want us to focus on? What are your top priorities? And they very clearly said it's about health, education, good jobs, no corruption, and nutrition. Those were the top five. They had 16 to choose between in total. And the very last one, the number 16 on this list, was climate change. It's not that it's not important, it's just the least important of all the issues that the UN put in front of 10 million people. And it's probably fairly reflective of the whole world. So again, it is an issue, it is not the most important one, it's certainly not the end of the world. And so again, let's get our priorities straight and let's stop 
being scared. Let's start tackle this like we tackle all other issues smartly. So then, what do we do if we look at if we look at this objectively and we look at uh, global warming, climate change? Uh, let's go back to global warming as a term, as a concern. And you've talked to us about this before, so I, I know I'm asking you to repeat territory that you've already covered with us. But for people who find themselves perhaps alarmed beyond where they were recently, or if they're dealing with children who are who are uh, talking about being being afraid of our species becoming extinct and many other species on the planet dying out because of global warming. What's the what? What's your preferred path? What What do we need to do to create uh, a, an operating model that that really works for everybody? Well, I think before we start, and I want to get back to talking about what should be the solution, but before we even start talking about that, we need to get people back in sane territory. We need to stop the screaming. Uh, so just to give you a few pointers on this, uh, you know, Greta, very clearly in, in your quote, you talked about how people are dying from climate change. If you actually look at the thing that almost everyone worries about when they talk about uh, climate change, namely extreme weather, we have seen a dramatic decline in the number of people dying from extreme weather and basically from weather-related events. Uh, back in the 1920s, so 100 years ago, about half a million people died each year because of droughts, floods, uh, storms, and extreme temperatures. Today, that number is down below 20,000 per year. So we've gone from a world where we had half a million lost 95% reduction. We are not in a world where people are dying more. We're in a world where people are dying a lot less. And of course, the reason is that we have pulled people out of poverty, that we have gotten much more resilient. So it's important to recognize that what really works against climate challenges and most other challenges is prosperity. If you want to help people live good and fulfilling lives, live much longer, be less sick, get better education, all these other things, and also be more robust towards climate change. It's about prosperity. So in some very specific sense, you could say one of the best climate policies you can possibly have is to make sure you help lift people out of poverty, that you get them into prosperity. We often forget this. So look, there's no need to be scared and think the world is coming to an end it's actually going in the right direction. This is true in pretty much any other area that you care to look at. Now, there's still the issue of global warming, which will cost somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of global GDP by the 2070s. But to get a sense of how should we tackle that? Well, two things. We shouldn't be spending a lot more than what the problem we're actually trying to avoid costs. So, for instance, when New Zealand says, they're going to go out and pay what's equivalent to about 16% of GDP. It's a dumb idea to spend 16% of GDP to avoid part of a 2% problem. But more generally, what we need to do is to invest a lot more in green energy research and development. Look, the simple point is, right now, fossil fuels are cheaper than renewables, which is why almost everyone uses fossil fuels, and very few, unless they get subsidized, use renewables. If we could change that, if we could make green energy cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone would switch, the Chinese, the Indians, everybody else. So if we can, through innovation, 
get the price of green energy down, we've solved the problem. If we don't, we will not be able to afford to get everyone to switch. So green energy research and development is really the simple and straightforward answer, which also is shown by most economic, uh, climate economic research. This is one of the best investments you can do to actually fix this problem in the medium. Let me take a quick break, and then I'm going to come back and talk to you about that, because you've written that rich countries are breaking their innovative promise. They're talking out of both sides of their mouths at the same time. My guest is Dr. Bjorn Lomborg. And uh, again, it's uh, the Copenhagen Consensus Center. That's uh, his think tank, which Dr. Lomborg founded. It's copenhagenconsensus.com. His uh, newspaper columns appear around the world, and one of his internationally best-selling books is Cool It. And again, Time magazine declared Dr. Lomborg to be one of the world's 100 most influential people. We'll come back with Bjorn Lomborg right after this on the Chorus Radio Network. We're back with Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, founding director of the Copenhagen Consensus Center Think Tank, and we're talking about, as we do with Dr. Lomborg, about the issue of global warming, climate change, and the best way to approach this issue for the benefit of everybody in, uh, on, on this planet. And, uh, and, and so, Dr. Lomborg, again, we don't need to really get too concerned when Prince Charles warns us that we're all about to die. <laughs> well, we, we certainly need to get our priorities right. Yes. And again, for most people on this planet, there are many other things that matter much, much more than climate change. And if you actually want to help them, it's about lifting them out of poverty, making sure their kids don't die of easy curable infectious diseases, get them a good education, these very simple basic things that we know how to do and we can do much cheaper. But we're an advanced civilization. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can actually also try to fix climate change. But Let's not do this incredibly ineffectively, which is what most governments do right now, namely subsidizing inefficient uh, uh, existing uh, green technology, but rather invest a lot more in green energy research and development. If we can help make green energy cheaper than fossil fuels, we'll have fixed climate change for everyone. Now, you, uh, you wrote about rich countries are breaking their innovative promise. And I'd like you please please speak about this, because we hear from politicians, and I hear, maybe it's because I pay attention to what European Union politicians have to say about the issue of climate. They're usually the first ones to jump on the issue. But then I see that Germany, while it's made many commitments, has not not followed through on significant numbers. It's not just Germany, though, is it? No. I mean, the, the point here is to say there's two things you can spend your money on with climate. One is to just simply buy inefficient current existing solar and wind. That costs a lot of money. It looks good because you get this photo up where you can actually say, see, I care about the environment, but it doesn't do very much. Or you could spend your resources on research and development to make the next generations of green energy much cheaper. Unfortunately, because we keep screaming, because everybody keeps believing this is the end of the world right around the corner, Everyone puts all their money, you just mentioned the 60 billion euros that Germany is thinking of putting in, they put almost all of that into existing technology to feel good. I am arguing, and that's also what climate economics shows us, that we should be spending this on research and development. It would do much more good. But of course, it doesn't make for it nearly as nice a photo op. So what's happening is all countries are spending more and more money 
on the ineffective policies. And unfortunately, we've actually seen a decline in how much money is being spent on research and development, despite that being one of the promises that came out of Paris and where Canada was also one of the signatories. We decided we were going to double our investment in green energy R&D. And unfortunately, we haven't seen that change at all since 2015. Is there a country, is there a region of the world where they're doing what you're suggesting and doing it effectively? Unfortunately, not really, no. I mean, uh, if you look, for instance, at the Gates Foundation, he was one of the guys who was working together with Obama and the other uh, leaders of the big economies uh, for the Paris summit to actually make sure leaders were focusing on investing in green energy R&D. Gates is actually spending quite a bit of money in new, for instance, in fourth generation nuclear and in other demonstration technologies that could be some of those technologies they'll come up and actually power the 21st century with little or no CO2 emissions. That's fantastic. But unfortunately, most countries are driven by the Greta effect, as, as you started playing in, in the beginning, that we're all scared witless. So we've got to do something right now. So we end up just spending lots of money to showcase how good we are, essentially some sort of virtue signaling where we all decide, well, we're going to show each other that we really care about global warming. We're going to burn off a lot of billions of dollars but it'll actually not help very much. And that, of course, is the big tragedy that we end up spending so much money on this, yes, important issue, but do it so badly and also forget all the other issues in the world. And if we come back to something you said earlier today and you said previously on this program, the world is in better shape than ever, and you wrote about that recently. Yes. I mean, look, if pretty much all accounts So, you know, the UN has three different areas where it looks at what really matters for humans. And they point out it's the economy, it's the social impact, and it's the environmental impact. If you look at each one of these, the most important indicators show that we're getting better off. Over the last 25 years, we have, partly because we have had access to lots of cheap energy, we have managed to lift over a billion people out of extreme poverty. That's an amazing achievement. Every day for the last 25 years, all papers in the world could have had this on their front page, 38,000 people lifted out of poverty since yesterday. Isn't that amazing? And what a headline. People don't know this. What a headline. The The second one is, We've dramatically increased life expectancy. In the early part of last century, we were just around 30, 34 years on average on this planet. Today, we're about 72 years on average life expectancy on this planet. Dr. We Lombard, have more than two years, two lifetimes. Yeah. I have to stop you there, but I appreciate okay. always you coming on the show. Thanks so much for making time for us. Wonderful. Thank you. All the best. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, and uh, it's CopenhagenConsensus.com if you want to look at the website of his think tank, which includes seven Nobel laureates. A story that is really making its way around the world, and it's got particular focus in the United States, but it's a global story, is the story about the President of the United States and a phone call between him and the President of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. And the Trump whistleblower complaint that has caused the Democratic Party to launch official impeachment actions, or at least an inquiry, against President Trump. So is President Trump in danger of impeachment and perhaps removal of office? 
or his call and interactions with the president of Ukraine? Or is this a political witch hunt, since the whistleblower is acting on secondhand information? The whistleblower, he or she, is set to uh, either be or have been a member of the CIA and the intelligence community. And it seems to me, I mean, I was watching this and listening to everything that's going on, and I'm suddenly thinking, hey, there's so many experts all of a sudden on whistleblowers and on the CIA and on the White House and communication between the President of the United States and other leaders. Everybody's suddenly an expert. Sorry, I'm not. I'll have to ask questions to get answers. I'm not, I'm not an expert. Fred Flights is. He's the director of the Center for Security Policy in D.C. He served last year as deputy assistant to President Trump and chief of staff to National Security Advisor John Bolton. He was 25 years with the CIA and the DIA and was chief of staff for the NSA. National, what, what does NSA stand for again, Fred? I was chief of staff to the National Security Advisor. Okay. Uh, I was also Bolton's chief of staff at the State Department. Okay. So thank you very much for joining us. You tweeted yeah. out, uh, you tweeted, uh, and you're at Fred uh, Flights, that the whistleblower had help from the staff of Democratic Congressman and Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, who clearly despises Donald Trump. How did you arrive at, at that conclusion, and what do, you, what do you say is going on in all of this? Well, I've seen a lot of whistleblowing complaints in my time with the House Intelligence Committee staff and the CIA, and this complaint looked very odd, and a lot of people in Washington have said that. Uh, it isn't simply that it was well-written and it had footnotes. It had very detailed legalistic footnotes that looked like a law professor wrote the complaint. It had a number of legalistic references that political analysts like myself wouldn't have included. But, you know, that's not enough to say that maybe this guy had outside help, that there was some collaboration with others. The, the clincher for me was the fact that the subject matter of the complaint uh, had been discussed by the House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff for almost a month before this uh, a, a complaint appeared. And on the 28th of August, Schiff posted a tweet that was really, really close to this particular complaint. So I've been told by a staff member and a member of the House Intelligence Committee staff, who's are both uh, Republicans, that they think that uh, attorneys with the committee helped write this complaint. And this was orchestrated to hurt the president. Uh, if I understand it correctly, you were privy to conversations between American presidents and foreign leaders in your previous roles with the U.S. intelligence community, right? I was privy to what? To uh, conversations between presidents and other national leaders. You well, when I was executive secretary of the National Security Council, right. I used to edit the transcripts of you know, several dozen uh, phone conversations between the president and foreign leaders. Okay, so you know how they go. Um, do you have concerns professionally that Mr. Trump crossed the line in his conversation with the president of Ukraine while speaking about the Biden family and Hunter Biden specifically. When you look at the information that we have that was released by the White House, do you have any concerns that Mr. Trump crossed the line? I, I don't think there was any quid quo quo. I don't think anything illegal was done, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that this uh, merits impeachment. I mean, we know uh, the way the president talks is fairly freewheeling in the way he discusses this. The, the Wall Street Journal and National Review both looked at this transcript very carefully, and they have not given the president a, a free pass, and neither of them think this would rises to the level of impeachment or, or merits the the, um, the attacks on the president that we've seen from uh, Democratic members of Congress. 
you tweeted, uh, this is not an intelligence matter. It's a policy matter. And a complaint about differences over policy. Presidential phone calls are not an intelligence concern. The fact that IC officers uh, transcribe these calls does not give the ICIG jurisdiction over these calls. So in layman's terminology, what, is, what does that mean? Well, look, if you're, if you're a member of the, of the American or Canadian government and you see something wrong, I think you have to report it. Right. But where do you report it? In this instance, it was brought to an intelligence inspector general, even though it wasn't an intelligence matter. The president's phone call to the foreign leader are not an intelligence matter. They're not the, under the purview of an intelligence inspector general. If, if an intelligence officer witnessed this policy, uh, had a difference with this policy, or thought that there was abuse in this policy, he or she could have gone to the Justice Department, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the FBI. There are lots of places that this person could have gone, but it, but it's, it's important that intelligence agencies stay out of policy and policy decisions. Uh, so I don't think this issue should have come to the House Intelligence Committee either. So this, uh, if I hear you correctly, this is a political issue. It is. And I mean, you can, I mean, if people are arguing that the president did something unethical in foreign policy, if they believe that, there's a place that can bring this complaint. But unless there is an intelligence equity, intelligence collection, intelligence analysis, intelligence operations, it's not an intelligence matter. Where's it going? How, how do you see this, uh, this, this developing? Because I've heard that the Democrats want to uh, conclude the impeachment inquiry uh, in a matter of maybe three weeks. Am I, am I hearing that correctly? Am I, am I getting we're not, good information? We're not sure where it's going. There's this inquiry, but it's not a formal impeachment hearing, mm-hmm. which would give the minority subpoena rights and the rights to call on their own witnesses. There's still this determination over whether they're going to pursue impeachment. It looks like the Democrats want to go down this road, but only so far. And I, I'm, I'm not convinced they're going to go all the way down it. Well, it's uh, certainly a story that the, the, the whole world is looking at, and, and we'll be hearing more going forward. Uh, Fred Flights, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Good to be here. Thank you. All the best. At Fred Flights, F-L-E-I-T-Z, the director of the Center for Security Policy. He also does a lot of uh, public speaking, um, and he served last year as deputy assistant to President Trump and was chief of staff to National Security Advisor John Bolton, who's gone now, of course, from that position. And uh, Mr. Flights spent 25 years with the CIA and the DIA. Uh, I know what I knew what DIA meant about an hour ago, but it's kind of gone. All these letters, it's just alphabet soup to me. But anyway, I just thinking about everybody was suddenly uh, an expert on intelligence and communications between leaders. Joining us is Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos. Sean, thanks for the time. And how does the undecided voter factor into this election at this point of the campaign? Yeah, well, normally I don't get too excited about undecided voters uh, because elections usually aren't uh, very close and uh, it's a relatively small proportion of the population. Uh, But in this case, uh, the election is pretty close. Uh, The uh, Liberals and Conservatives are within four points of each other. And 11% of the population says that they are undecided, 
with about half of them saying that they're certain to vote. So that's about five or six percent of the population. If they vote as a as a block or disproportionately for one party, then they can uh, sway the outcome. So could they? They could then have a significant impact on what Parliament looks like after the night of October the twenty first. The undecideds, depending which way they go. Yeah, exactly. Well, we know a couple of things about them. Um, we know that they're primarily in uh, in urban and, and suburban areas, which, of course, uh, is where most of the ridings are. Um, we also know that, um, you know, they're not so hot on the prime minister at the moment, but they really don't like Andrew Scheer. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, if they uh, en masse decide to, to vote for the Liberals or the Green Party or the NDP, for example, then, um, you know, they, they could have... Um, uh, quite a bit of influence in determining the outcome of some of some key ridings. Uh, when it comes to how the parties are breaking down at this point, I was looking at the uh, the poll from the 24th, and that says if an election were held tomorrow, so 25th, a couple of days ago, conservatives would uh, have 36 percent national support, the liberals 32, and then a significant drop off to the NDP with 15 and the Greens at 11. What does that represent? Well, it likely represents a conservative minority government. Uh, we're seeing that uh, it's not so much that the Tories have momentum, it's that the Liberals are down uh, by, by three points compared to the week before. Um, but it's it's not evenly distributed. Some votes are going to the Conservatives, some are going to the NDP, some are going to the Green Party. So there's a little bit of good news in, in all of this for everybody. Uh, you say, even the Liberals? Yes, even the Liberals, because I think the damage could have been worse. Three points uh, decline in one week isn't uh, terrible, given the kind of week they had. But they don't want to continue to uh, slide backwards, because if they do that until the 21st of October, not good things are going to develop that night for the Liberals. Oh, absolutely. But they, they, they still have a reasonable amount of strength in, in some very important areas. Uh, in, in Quebec, they have a double-digit lead over all of the other parties. Uh, in Ontario, uh, they had an eight-point lead at one point in time. Now it's a tie. Uh, so I think the most concerning thing for them is, is uh, uh, you know, maybe losing some of the seats in the 905, where even just a week ago they, they likely would have carried. And in British Columbia, we essentially have a uh, almost a four-way race. Uh, all four parties are within 10 points of each other. And so, uh, you know, losing some, some key seats in the uh, in the Vancouver or, or uh, uh, lower mainland area, I think, uh, would be concerning for the Liberals. So let's look at issues that matter. And I understand number one is health care. Number two is affordability. Mm-hmm. But climate is number three. And that puts it higher than it's been in any contemporary federal election. Yeah, I don't remember it ever being um, so so salient an issue. Uh, and I mean, we can see it uh, given what happened yesterday in uh, in Montreal, in particular, but but in in many cities and towns across the the country. Um, and the reason I, I think it's such a, um, an interesting issue in this campaign is because the parties are very much differentiated on it. On the one side, you've got the Tories; they hate they hate carbon tax, uh, and they make the issue out to be more about the economy than about the the environment. Uh, and then on the, the at the other side of the equation, you've got, you know, uh, 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 the parties uh, taking a different approach to trying to solve this same issue. The problem is, is that that calculus doesn't work because you've got three parties trying to split about half of the voters who are uh, in favor of climate, uh, uh, sorry, uh, carbon taxes, and the conservatives consolidating the vote under their banner among the people who oppose carbon taxes. We also have the headline, Canadians want to stop climate change, but half don't want to pay an extra cent. Speak to that, please. 
yeah, it seems uh, sort of contradictory, doesn't it? Uh, when it comes time to put uh, money where their mouth is, 46% of Canadians say, I'm not willing to spend anything else in terms of extra taxes or paying more for goods of service, goods or services in order to do their part to, to help climate change. I think there's two things going on here. One is that, that many Canadians, uh, I think, blame other people, other Canadians, other countries, uh, primarily for the uh, the crisis that uh, that we find ourselves in. And secondly, I think a lot of people say, look, I already pay enough tax to government. Uh, they've, they've got all kinds of my money. I, I think it's up to them to, to use the money more efficiently and to figure out the best solutions going forward, understanding that affordability is the number two issue of the campaign, and I can't afford to pay anything more than I already am. You know, I, I, I think that one probably resonates uh, among the people. I know that would be the one that would really resonate. I already pay enough, uh, and I can't afford to pay any more. And I'm, I'm reminded of the poll that you did earlier this year, which showed that uh, 46% of Canadians say they're within $200 of not being able to pay their bills. It's pretty scary yeah. stuff, which yeah, brings us to affordability, right? Exactly. There's not not a lot of money left in people's pockets at the end of the month. And even though climate change is the number three issue, number two is affordability, number four taxes, number five is the economy. Those are all pocketbook issues, right? And and I think that really that's why we it sets up the narrative, the debate over climate change, because uh, the Tories know that it you know it motivates their base when they talk about the impact that it can have on jobs uh, and and on people's pocketbooks. But it also motivates you know the Green Party, the NDP, and the Liberal base who want to do more to to combat climate change and are actually willing to to spend a little bit of their money in order to uh, to accomplish that. Sean, I'd like to come back to something you said earlier when we were talking about the undecided voters and you said they they are sort of uh, a little lukewarm, I'm using my word, on uh, Justin Trudeau, but they really don't like Andrew Scheer. They don't like Andrew Scheer? Well, uh, so there's there's two things here. One is that um, uh, the, the approval ratings for uh, Justin Trudeau and, and his government are, uh, you know, lukewarm is a great way of, of describing it. Tepid, maybe another one. Um, but when we ask people who would make the best prime minister, Andrew Scheer does not fell uh, does not fare well among uh, among these 11 percent of people who, who are undecided. So they're likely not going to park their vote um, with the with the Conservatives. But the question is, will they actually show up and vote? Mm-hmm. We know that two thirds of Canadians say that they will vote, but it's it's only about forty eight percent of undecided people. So, you know, they have to be motivated by something in order to go out and vote. At the moment, it maybe not uh, it might not be the prime minister. We know it's not Andrew Scheer. So, will Jagmeet Singh or Elizabeth May inspire these people to go out and vote? That remains to be seen. Well, it'll be fascinating to see how the polls develop between now and the twenty first of October. I'm sure there'll be dips and curves and swings and climbs and drops. Who knows what's going to happen between now and then. And thanks for all the information this week. My pleasure, Roy. Good talking to you always. Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos Polling, Ipsos Canada. And uh, all the polling was done for Global News. And you can find it on the uh, globalnews.ca website. Germain Belzile joins us from the Montreal Economic Institute. Monsieur Belzile, thank you very much for the time. We've talked about this before, but it's the election campaign. It's an important issue. That 66% is a big number. It sure is. It dwarfs, in fact, all the uh, other uh, uh, places where we could uh, buy our oil in, in Quebec. So, in fact, uh, by a huge margin, Quebecers prefer oil from uh, Western Canada than from anywhere else. And... Uh, the supporters of Monsieur Legault, of Premier Legault, and the CAC party, I see that your polling shows that 79% of those voters want oil from Western Canada. 
Um, correct. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the the voters for the the CAC party are maybe a little more nationalistic than the than the average in, in Quebec, and uh, obviously that includes that includes uh, Canadian nationalism. In fact, uh, the people would prefer to buy our own oil than oil from somewhere somewhere else. So let's go back and have a, a look at what Quebecers had to say about the viability of pipelines, the importance of pipelines vis-a-vis other options like rail or truck. Um, how do Quebecers feel about the use of pipelines? Well, uh, it's by far the, the, uh, the preferred uh, way to transport oil uh, in the minds of Quebecers. And in fact, if you add up uh, uh, um, transport by truck, uh, by boat, or uh, by rail, well, the total of that is less, in fact, than the people who support uh, transport by, by pipelines. In fact, since uh, at least uh, since Black Megantic, uh, I think Quebecers know that uh, transport by rail is, uh, is, da- is dangerous, in fact. And in fact, the safest way to transport oil is by pipeline. However, I, I, would, I would say that maybe we, uh, we suffer from the NIMBY um, uh, syndrome, which is uh, not in my backyard. So we'd like to have... Uh, 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 these pipelines, but not necessarily in our own backyard. So whenever when everyone does that, well, we have to fa- to find places where uh, there's not much population. Right. So 45% of Quebecers, uh, according to your polling, show pipelines as the number one option as far as moving oil is concerned. Number two would be uh, by truck, and third is rail, and then fourth is by ship. Uh, if pipelines were actually started to be built, constructed, Let's say Energy East were to be started to be constructed in the province of Quebec. What would the popular view of that be? Do you think? Um, in my view, uh, the, uh, the the whole project uh, Energy East wasn't well thought before uh, they started. They they made they made the pipelines pass through uh, big population areas mm-hmm. uh, near Montreal. In fact, uh, across a lot of rivers uh, and streams, and so that made the the project not very popular so if uh, in fact uh, a more northern way had been uh, chosen i think that it would have been much uh, easier and at the moment right now there is uh, the beginning of a project for uh, liquefied natural gas and it's uh, much much uh, uh, in a northern place uh, compared to montreal and i think that the opposition will be much uh, much smaller so if uh, Premier Legault decided to change his mind or change his position on uh, oil from Western Canada and uh, pipelines, as you say, geographically separately or differently rooted, he would have, uh, according to the polling done for the Montreal Economic Institute, he would have the kind of support, public support, that would make that possible for him to make that decision. Well, um, people can always uh, adopt in, in polling different <laughs> Okay. Positions that are not necessarily uh, coherent, but this this being said, uh, I think that the the main objection was really where the pipelines uh, went through, and uh, and I think that uh, if that can be lifted, that problem can be lifted. Well, I think that uh, it would. It, uh, there's certainly a, a possibility of uh, arriving at a, an arrangement right now. But a premier ago, we have to understand that he's not doesn't have a uh, a, a green um, uh, let's say. Uh, 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 reputation. So, uh, because of that, maybe he's, uh, he's not very open to, uh, to to pipelines. Because of that, because he has to work a little bit to uh, to uh, burnish his reputation as a as a green advocate, but right. not there. So maybe that's 
playing also. It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in the in the federal election. Mr. Belzil, thank you. Really appreciate you coming back on the show. Good talking to thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Germain Belzil from the Montreal Economic Institute. The story yesterday, the RCMP released its report, as limited as it is, on the teenage British Columbia killers, Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod. And uh, it left me asking, why so, why so little? I know it's been addressed by some people, but I think we deserve more. Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, also the executive director of the Canadian Police Association. He's an adjunct professor at the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University, where Mr. Newark teaches a course on terrorism and civil liberties. Scott, what about that? Should we have gotten more from the RCMP, or did they do what they needed to do? in large part they did uh, do what they needed to do, Roy. I mean, I mean, there are still definitely questions that remain outstanding, but apparently it's because they don't have answers. There's no indication of any motive. These guys uh, recorded videos of themselves, apparently five that were delivered, one that may have been an accident, where they acknowledged, in fact, that they had done the, uh, the killings. They gave no indication of any motive whatsoever and expressed no remorse for what they did. So, as you can imagine, I mean, the RCMP was probably uh, looking into trying to understand, you know, why this had taken place, and when they don't have that information, they can't surmise something. So I think that's probably a part of what caused the delay in this as well, too. But that is still a big question that obviously is uppermost in most people's minds, is why would these people do this? Well, exactly. Uh, have you ever encountered a case uh, that, that even approaches this one and, and results in the kind of limited information that we received yesterday? Uh, not really. It's, um, I mean, I think, you know, uh, for me, the, uh, the, the issues that are raised by their uh, uh, releases, uh, I find it just bizarre that you could have two young people that ended up doing all of this and nobody in their small-town community noticed that there was something wrong about these guys? That seems kind of strange to me. Mm-hmm. The second one that, that uh, got my attention was the fact that the day that they were leaving, the 19-year-old guy, Cam McLeod, ends up, apparently he already had a uh, firearms license and the necessary um, uh, specified uh, permits, and they acquire a uh, semi-automatic rifle, which seems kind of strange to me. And, you know, they're able to buy bullets. And apparently the other gun that they found with them, and they've confirmed the, uh, that these were the firearms used in the murders, uh, was something that was from multiple parts that was put together. That seems kind of strange as well, too. I hope somebody's looking into that a little bit. Uh, and then the final thing I think about this is the RCMP's decision to not release the videos and to essentially you know, put a box around this stuff because they did not want to in any way encourage any kind of uh, copycat uh, activities by other people. And that's a legitimate concern, in my opinion, that uh, they've acted this way. You've seen other uh, jurisdictions uh, do the same thing. But it is something that is uh, understandable, and uh, there are still obviously some questions that are out there, especially in relation to the motive. But uh, this has been a strange case from beginning to end. Well, it really has. I mean, they had that camera with them for quite some period of time. Yeah, and, so, and you know they supposedly had a plan that they were going to get a boat and somehow yeah. you know get across to Africa somehow. Like as I say, I just find it strange that nobody seemed to notice that these guys, 
you know, were as uh, obviously odd as they were. What about the uh, length of time it took for for the report to be released? Well, I'm, I think they were probably being very careful, and I, I, I don't know this, but I would bet uh, it to be the case based on what they've described. I bet you there was a, an awful lot of forensic examination going on and determining what evidence they actually had. Given the fact of what they've now released in relation to the bullets that were found on scene, it is. I know you and I talked about this before, why it was that they were charged in the murder of uh, uh, the guy, uh, Professor Dick, but they were not charged in the murder of uh, yes. uh, Ms. Deese and her boyfriend, uh, Lucas Fowler, so, right? I mean, that that's just an yes. internal sort of an administrative thing, but um, that is something that has not been explained. Uh, this, was, this was a difficult case where they didn't have any eyewitness, you know, uh, evidence, and so I bet you there was a forensic examination going on in a, in a variety of uh, areas, and there may even some still be going on, especially in relation to the murder of this young girl, young woman. What is also going to continue to be disturbing, disturbing and, and raise questions is, let's go back to this one, no motive. Yeah. No motive. I, I, I expected something. Well, you know, pr- probably in relation to the uh, to the guy, the professor uh, Leonard Dick. I mean, the motive probably seems to be they wanted his vehicle uh, because there's what they were having problems with there. So right. it's probably simply to steal his vehicle, and while they were at it, they stole his money. But there's been no explanation of any motive whatsoever in re- in relation to the first uh, young couple, uh, Tina Deese and her boyfriend uh, Lucas Fowler, uh, and that's. That is something that there may be information that the police have they've decided to hold on to out of respect for the victim's family. We don't know. Now, I know the issue of gun acquisition is important to you, and you just touched on it a couple of minutes ago, but what about um, you've got two young guys here, 18 and 19 years of age, and they have the Access and SKS, which is a fairly unsophisticated rifle, but nevertheless, it, it, it has killing and stopping power. It was used yeah. by this, the Soviets in, uh, in for part of World War II, and it's been used by uh, other countries, I think until fairly recently, as part of their uh, sort of fundamental arsenal for ground troops. But uh, what does that say to you? That, uh, or d- does that raise red flags for you that they were able to obtain the weapons they were or the well, gun that they I, were? I, I link that back to the, uh, the issue about their uh, behavior. And um, for, I think, a 19-year-old to be able to acquire a semi-automatic rifle... I would have thought that there would have been some, you know, fairly significant uh, background uh, check and screening to make sure that the, uh, you know, like what was the purpose of this? And it was acquired literally, seemingly, you know, uh, uh, literally on the day the individual left and they were able to buy ammunition. I, I just think that it might be a useful case to take a look internally at the system to make sure that all of the appropriate screening is uh, being done as uh, as is required because, you know, it, this just seems like an odd circumstance. If, if I happen to be somebody, you know, that, uh, and I don't know when he got his uh, license, by the way, we don't, that hasn't been revealed. Um, that's something that raises an eyebrow for me. Yeah, he would have had to have passed all the, uh, answer all the questions and satisfied and the, the did, licensing. Yes. Yeah. So and it's fairly I mean that's fairly uh, detailed to to get your license. You would think, yeah. But uh, I I'm not comfortable with uh, obviously because of the results. Uh, you look back and you say, uh, But the, but you know that's that's a legitimate point to make because that's the way you want to use these cases, not as a finger pointing exercise, yeah. but instead as, you know, sort of lessons learned. Are there things that we could have realized about this that we should have that we didn't? 
Okay, and so in relation to the acquisition of the firearms, that's something that that I uh, actually would look at. But you know, you gotta you gotta always appreciate when you're dealing with something that is on its surface and appears to be completely irrational behavior. That means it can be very difficult to attempt to figure out what the rational purpose was. Scott, always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Okay, Roy. Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor. He was also the executive director of the Canadian Police Association, security advisor to the federal and Ontario governments following 9-11, and now adjunct professor at the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University, where he teaches a course on terrorism and civil liberties. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.